Bibles to John chapter number 1 with me. John chapter number 1. I want to preach a message. It's a little bit different uh, this evening. I believe that uh, <clears throat> we ought to be exhorted from the preaching of the Word of God, but I believe we ought to be educated from the preaching of the Word of God as well. And I believe there's things we need to learn. And you might say, well, that doesn't stir me up into a frenzy. No, but it might stabilize you when the storm comes. And so I want to teach you some things tonight and share some things that I hope will be a help and a blessing to you. In John chapter number 1, beginning in the first verse, I I believe this is probably one of the greatest chapters in all of the Word of God. Every bit of it's inspired, uh, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, there's no question. Uh, But there are certain portions of the Scripture that uh, seem to rise to an epic of theological thought, seem to rise to a plane and share with us some things that maybe some other portions of Scripture don't. John chapter number 1 is certainly one of those. I don't know if you've ever seen a chronological Bible before. They make chronological Bibles. If you were to make a chronological Bible, then John chapter number 1 and verse 1 would be the first verse you'd place in it, for it reaches back into the depths of eternity like no other verse in the Word of God does. And it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world... And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, like verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And I'd like for you to underscore that phrase, He hath declared Him. Would you pray with me this evening? Heavenly Father, I want Your Word to be effectual this evening. I know that by nature it is effectual, that it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But Lord, I pray that this evening we'd not do anything that'd make the Word of God of none effect in our hearts and lives. But that, Lord, we would humble ourselves before Your Word and apply it to our hearts. There's one here that's never accepted Christ. Your Son is their Savior. I pray they'd not leave this place. 
I pray they'd find no exit from this place before they come to know Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that each and every need would be met. But Lord, I pray that the high and holy name of Your Son would be lifted up above us. And Lord, that He would increase and we might decrease. Father, we love You and we thank You for it. We'll be sure to give You the praise, honor, and glory. And we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. We've read a fascinating ensemble of verses here. I could take one of these verses and I could preach for hours. Don't get nervous, that's not my plan. But when we take all of these verses collectively, we find that they present to us something very, very interesting. The book of John is one of the books of the Bible that is very deliberate in giving us the purpose of its writing. It is full of historical matter and historical content, though John is not written to be a history book. Uh, Certainly there is prophecy in the book of John. The prophecy of Peter's death is foretold in the book of John, as well as John's long life in the book of John. But it's not a book primarily of prophecy. It is what we call a gospel. Now, just because we call it a gospel, that doesn't mean that it's defined as the gospel proper. Uh, The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes to us the gospel. But what it is is a portrayal of the earthly life and ministry of our Lord and Savior, His sacrifice upon Calvary, and His resurrection, and the days that follow. But there's something unique about the book of John. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call synoptic gospels, meaning that they basically present to us the same body of content with different emphasis. But the book of John is wholly unique. You say, why is that, preacher? Well, it's because of what's written in John chapter 20 and verse 31. It's one verse. I'll just read it to you. Welcome to turn there, but you don't have to. The express purpose of the Gospel of John is given as thus. It says, But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. You see, uh, the book of John is the only book in the Bible expressly written to the lost. It's given to share the purpose and plan and propitiation of our Lord and Savior. And it's given to give absolutely infallible proofs that He is the very Christ and the Son of the living God. And you know, the Holy Spirit, uh, it's wonderful. I don't know if you've ever just studied how God's Word is inspired. Looked at the wonderful things that God has done in His Word. It's completely contrary to what human logic and thought would do. If you have a locked door, chances are you hide the key away somewhere. But the Holy Spirit puts the key to the book of John right on the front door and gives us some truths that are going to help us as we read the book of John. Now you say, preacher, I'm saved. Does that mean I'll not read the book of John? No, don't rob yourself that way. Read, study, fall in love with the book of John. But understand that the scope of it is to present Christ not as the King of kings, although that's who He is. Not as the Son or as the servant of God, although that's who He is. Not as the Son of Man, although that's who He is. But as the very Son of God and God in the flesh. And so in John chapter number 1, I want us to look in these 18 verses. And we're just going to touch on them. Time would fail us. Even if I was as long-winded as long-winded it gets and added an extra 20 minutes, time would fail us to preach all there is in these 18 verses. 
but I just want to give you a sevenfold testimony of John chapter number 1. Seven things that John chapter number 1 tells us bears testimony to Christ being the Son of God. Number one, I want you to note in the first two verses, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And I want you to underline that in your Bible if you do so. And the Word, there it is again, was with God. And the Word, now the infidels don't like this, because it says the Word was God. The Bible says the same was in the beginning with God. So we have first off the testimony of revelation tells us that Christ is the Son of God and God in the flesh. God presents to us first off that His Word tells us that Christ is the Son of God. And He does so by pulling back the curtains of time and showing us a place where no human mind can wander without the assistance of God's Holy Word. I'm struck by the phrase that's used. It says, in the beginning. Well, what beginning? There's lots of beginnings in the Gospels. We find the beginning of the world spoken of. We find the beginning of the works and ministry of Christ spoken of. We find the beginning of the miracles. We find the beginning of various things in the book of John. But just as Paul's thorn in the flesh is left uh, to be unanimous, uh, left to be anonymous, so it's unanimous. Left to be vague so that it applies to everyone. Here in this passage, we're not told what beginning. We're told the beginning. In other words, go as far back as you can go and you'll find God and His Word there. It does not say that the Word was created. It says the Word was. It's trying to tell us that God's Word is not only forever settled in heaven future, but it's always existed. You say, but I thought if we study Bible history and we study the giving of God's Word and then we study the translations, and that's very true. I'm not disputing that with you. But understand that the Bible tells us in verse number 14 that the nature of the Word of God and the nature of the Son of God are synonymous. Christ is the very Word of God. He's the expression of the Godhead. What is a Word? A Word is a means through which we express something. It's the means through which we take the ideas in our hearts, project them to another. It's how we take our feelings, share them with another. Take our ideas, share them with another. Christ is the expression of the Godhead. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that this Word has borne testimony of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go far in the Gospel of John or in the New Testament in general to find the Bible testifying that Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. And let me say, that ought to be the end of it right there. I don't know why it is that human beings feel like they need 17 sources and 13 experts to prove anything to them. What's God saying? He's saying, I've given you in my word this truth that Christ is the Son of God. We could go and uh, share the gospel account of the story uh, of uh, the heavens being opened, the Holy Spirit descending down upon Christ in the image of a dove, and the voice of God from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We could go through and find the passages that tell us that if a man does not accept Christ as the Son of God, he's an infidel. He does not have the faith. He's turned his back. He has the spirit of Antichrist if he says that Christ has not come in the flesh. And yet you'd be surprised how many people dispute this. If you were to study the statistics, I don't have them right before me. Statistics are a sketchy thing sometimes. Did you know that they say that 40% of all statistics are made up right on the spot? Did you know that? And uh, statistics can be a bit of a hairy thing. 
But statistically, you'll find that the farther that young preachers go in the Southern Baptist seminaries, the more they deny the literal incarnation of Christ as the Son of God. You'll find that in places that we might call institutions of higher learning, really they're institutions of lower living is what they are, but institutions of higher learning, and we've got a few around this town too, by the way, in case you didn't know, uh, a few of those places, uh, you'll find that the notion of Christ being God, the deity of Jesus Christ, is a notion that's scoffed at. Why, only a fool would believe in such fairy tales that Christ is actually God in the flesh. And yet to throw that out, we must throw out the entire Word of God. For the Word of God is very clear that the Word was God, and it still is. It's not just an expression of God, although that's what it is, but it is God. God's Word has always been with Him. It's interesting, all the means God could have employed to create this world, but He did not use various uh, means. He did not use diverse manners, but He spoke, and it was created in a moment. Why did He do this? It was the creative power of Christ. You see, we see the testimony of Revelation, but look at verse number 3. It says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The second testimony is the testimony of creation. You say, you're telling me, preacher, that a person can look up at the sun and accept Christ through that knowledge. No, uh, the testimony of creation is insufficient to lead a person to a personal saving knowledge of God. There's no question about that. However, if you were to look at creation, you would find that it bespeaks this thought to us, not only that we have a God, but that we have a personal God. You see, the message that creation gives to us is not just that there is some great clock winder up into the heavens as the deists believe, but rather that our God is a God that's concerned with our everyday lives. You say, why do you believe that, preacher? Well, I believe that because God could have made it 102 degrees every day of our life, couldn't He? Or He could have made it 25 degrees every day of our life. God could have provided us with no greater means of food supply than than nuts and berries and and oats and things of that nature. And yet God's provided a pretty comfortable life here for us on planet Earth. I I know that the liberals believe we're destroying it. By the way, you say, Preacher, do you believe in global warming? I absolutely believe in global warming. You'd have to be a fool not to believe in global warming. The Bible tells us that the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to cause it, but one of these days the Lord's going to set this earth on fire. It ain't going to be because I drove an SUV either, but it's going to be in accordance with the will of God. We find that creation bears testimony of Christ. The Bible says that the heavens declare God's handiwork. Do you think God's handiwork is the heavens? Now, of course, He created those, but what's God's handiest work? It was when He sent His Son on Calvary to pay for your sins and mine. You see, creation bears testimony that we have a God that cares that's interested in our life, a God that pays attention to detail. I know Mr. Darwin would like us to believe in the theory of evolution. A lot of people say that he recanted that before he died. I don't know whether he did or not. I was not there. But uh, I've known some people that probably were, amen. But I don't know whether he did or not. Uh, But I know that Darwin always considered it just a theory. And uh, Darwin would have had us to believe that we evolved from monkeys. I don't know where to start to point out all the holes in the theory of evolution. And by the way, the public school system is teaching our young people this truth as gospel. Do you know that? 
They are not teaching it as theory. They are not teaching it as a possibility or even a plausibility. Uh, But they are teaching it as an absolute fact. But did you know that we have a God that's a God of detail? There's what we might call irreducible complexity in the human body. You say, boy, that's an expensive word. A little bit, but let me explain what it means. It means that there are certain portions of the human body that could not have evolved because if you were to remove any single portion of their complexity, they wouldn't function whatsoever. The human eye has to be as complex as it is to function the way that it does. You see, Mr. Darwin believes we started as a uh, primitive sludge. Amen. I've met a few people that still look like that. I'm sure you have too. As a primitive sludge, a, a, a primeval sludge. And we got more complex and more complex and more complex. But the notion of survival of the fittest dictates that anything that is superfluous or unnecessary must be done away with in the evolutionary process to provide for a streamlined approach for evolution. In other words, there's nothing that is kept for no reason whatsoever. However, the human eye, if it was any less complex than it is, would simply be a hindrance to a creature. No, friend, we were not created in the image of monkeys. We were not created in the image of primeval sludge, but we were created in the image of the very God of heaven. Why were we created in that image? The Bible tells us that though we're created in this image now, though now we just appear in the image of God, one day we'll be like Him. You see, the very creation of man in the image of God denotes that God had a plan of redemption for mankind always from the beginning. The fact that mankind has the ability to know God tells me that God wants man to know Him. Creation bespeaks to us that God would send a Redeemer. Creation bespeaks to us that Christ, when He came, was not just a great teacher, but was the Creator. You say, why do you believe that? Because the control He had over creation. (laughs) Oh, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey Him? He lifted out His hand and calmed the raging sea. None but the Creator could do this. And so even creation bespoke Him as the Son of God. So we see a testimony of revelation, the testimony of creation. But I want you to notice in verse number 6, we see the testimony of proclamation. It says in verse number 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. One of the testimonies in the book of John that is presented to us is the proclamation of John the Baptist. Uh, Christ spoke often of the valid uh, validity, if you will, of witnesses. And the Bible says that in the mouth of two witnesses shall anything be established. And He spoke of the witness that He had of His works, that He had done the works of His Father. And He spoke of the witness that His Father had given uh, when He spoke from heaven and said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But He also spoke of the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was given as a forerunner for our Lord and Savior. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. And he gave forth that testimony when he saw Jesus walking that day towards the river of Jordan. He said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. But let me say it's not just about proclamation because John was a unique person in that he was two things. Number one, he was defined as a preacher. 
That was what John did. John had, I hate to say within him, the spirit of preaching. I don't mean to mysticize preaching. But I mean that the unique thing or the keynote element about John's ministry was that of preaching. How many miracles did John the Baptist perform? Come on now, give somebody $5. None. That's right. You thought it was a trick question. None. And yet all of the Judean hillside would lock up their shops and go down to the Jordan River and in flocks and droves come to hear this man. Why? Was it because of the great works that he did? No. It was because of the message that he preached. So he was a preacher. But let me say, secondly, he was the last, other than our Lord and Savior, of the prophets. He was giving the testimony of the coming Messiah. And so the proclamation element of this testimony is not just that John proclaimed Him, but that all the prophets had given testimony to Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable thought. And I think sometimes we don't really pay attention to how remarkable it is. Uh, The Word of God was written over hundreds of years uh, by many authors, all of them, by the way, inspired by the Holy Ghost. And you find that there is a perfect fluidness all through the Word of God a testimony of a coming Messiah. You can go all the way back uh, to prophets that we know nothing about, but that were prophets. The Bible speaks of Enoch being a prophet, uh, a prophet and the testimonies that he gave of the Lord coming with thousands of his saints to execute judgment. We could speak of Isaiah giving the testimony of the coming Messiah as a root, uh, as a, a plant out of dry ground, as a root out of dry ground, as a plant that hath no form nor comeliness. But we could look uh, through Daniel at the uh, coming Christ that is coming to fill up the world with his kingdom and on and on we could go through the prophets and we would find that there is a fluid message of a coming Messiah. No other quote-unquote religious book. And I don't even like to put them on the same shelf. In fact, any books that I have just for academic study that I consider to be heretical, they go on the bottom of the bookshelf in my office. Amen. I don't even put them on the same shelf as the Word of God. But no other religious book can claim such a miraculous fluidness throughout all of the text. All of the prophets bore testimony. And what did Christ say? He said to the Pharisees, uh, to search the Scripture. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which speak of me. He said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O Lord. All throughout the Old Testament we have the testimony of Christ. But let me say not only the testimony of prophets in the past, but let me say the testimony of preachers today. No other religion can boast the power of preaching that the gospel of Jesus Christ has manifested. No other single person throughout human history has had the hearts and minds and souls of so many men go forth and proclaim the message of their love. It was said one day on the island of Elba whenever Napoleon Bonaparte was in exile that he looked at a general that was next to him and he spoke the general's name. And he said to him, who do you think the greatest leader of all time, the greatest leader of men of all time was? And of course, wanting to keep in good, you know, you didn't talk down to Napoleon. He said, uh, why you of course, you of course. He said, no, it's not me. He said, it's Jesus Christ. He said, why do you say that? He said, because I can take men's allegiance by force and by power and by sword. But he, through the power of love and of the heart, has commanded an army greater than I could ever fathom. Listen, what it comes down to is this. If there's nothing to him, why is everybody talking about him? <laughs> if there's nothing to him. If, if that Christ fellow is just a myth and a fairy tale, if he was just a good person like the infidels quote, 
Then why does he have more preachers than Muhammad could ever, ever dream of? We see the testimony of proclamation. I want to go a little further. Look what it says there in verse number 9. I want to see we see the testimony of rejection. That may sound a little unique, but look with me at verse number 9. It says, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Let me just say that in that verse, it's not speaking of salvation being universal or the lie of universal brotherhood. We are not all God's children. Do you know that? We are all God's creatures, but we are not all God's children. Christ looked at the Pharisees and said, Ye are of your father, the devil. We're not all God's children. It's not speaking of the lie of universal brotherhood. I believe when it's speaking of the life that was the light of men, that it is speaking of merely the physical life, that even that is born from Christ and His life-giving power. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, And the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. You say, but how could the testimony of rejection be a testimony of his deity? Because when we study the Gospels, we find that the reason they reject him is because he preached truth. The reason they rejected Christ was because he was truth manifest in the flesh. I'll say again, as I said just a moment ago, if he's not the Son of God, why is it that the infidels are so upset about him? Listen, if Christ is not the Son of God, then why is it that we're building mosques in our country? Uh, In the same neighborhood where 3,000 Americans were murdered by God-hating terrorists. And yet the average county in this country will get in trouble for putting a nativity scene on their courtyard. Their, of their courthouse, on the yard of their courthouse. Why, why is it, friend, why is it that we have to accommodate Muslim prayer hours and yet we can't pray at a high school football game? If there's nothing to him, what are they so afraid of? Why is it that kids can take things like Korans to school and other books, quote-unquote, religious, but if they're caught reading a Bible at the wrong time, they're sent to the principal's office? Why is it, listen, why is it that homosexuals, sodomites, have a voice in our government when Bible-believing Christians don't? Why is that? I'll tell you exactly why it is. Because the world intrinsically knows who they're rejecting. They know who he is. They know who he is. They know there's something to it. That's why they're scared of it. The Bible says what? Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because they were tolerant. Is that why? Because they wanted everybody to get along, and those Christians, they just make everybody uncomfortable. No, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's why they love darkness rather than light. And I'm just telling you something that uh, preachers ought to be telling their congregation because I know you sit and you watch the news, and sometimes you wonder why are things this way. I do the same thing. But I take comfort in God's Word and understanding that the reason they're persecuting Him is in accordance with God's prophetic timetable. They're rejecting Him because He is the truth. Men would rather believe a lie than believe the truth. Anytime you count on it, men would rather believe a lie. The very rejection of Christ to me bespeaks that there's something about Him, that He spoke truth, that He was the Son of God. But I want to give you a fifth thing. Look at verse number 12. It says, but. As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, 
which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me say, fifthly, that we see the testimony of salvation. You say, why do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And if I could only give you one answer, this would be it. Because He saved me just like He promised He would. No other quote-unquote religion can boast of that. You know what religion can do? It can take an unreligious man and make him a religious man. That's all. You know what baptism can do? Baptism can take a dry sinner and make him a wet sinner. That's all. But Christ can take a lost, undone, reprobate, save them by the grace of God, and put the Holy Spirit within them to change their life and make them a new creature in Christ Jesus. No other quote-unquote religious system could boast of that. You say, why do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Because here I'm gathered with uh, myriads of people that have the same testimony that I do. Oh, friend, we could go to the farthing, far-reaching corners of this globe, and if there's a name that is called upon the name of Christ, it would give the same testimony that you give, that I give, that He saved them by His grace, that He's able to save them that come unto Him, save them to the uttermost that come unto Him. That's how I know Christ is the Son of God. It says, but as many as received Him to them gave you power, power to become the sons of God. Now, it didn't say power to be religious leaders. It didn't say uh, power to be great orators, but He gave them power to become the sons of God. That tells me something. It's not just the adopting of a religious system, but it is the saving of a soul. He gave them power to become the sons of God. And what does it say? They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That tells me that salvation is not something. It says that we're not born of blood. In other words, you don't inherit inherit salvation. It doesn't come to you by bloodline. And you were not saved by the will of the flesh. In other words, by your determination and good works, you were not saved. Nor by the will of man. In other words, you weren't saved because someone else chose you to be saved. But of God. I believe that Christ is the Son of God because He has the power to save sinners. And no other religious system can boast that. Buddha can't do anything but make a troubled sinner into a quote-unquote enlightened sinner, but cannot save them from their sins. Muhammad can take a sinner and turn him into a violent sinner, but cannot make him a saint, cannot save him. And on and on we could go. The Roman Catholic Church does not have the means to save the sinner no more than the Baptist Church does. Only Christ can save you from your sins. We see the fifth testimony of salvation, but we see the sixth testimony of the incarnation. Look at verse 14. It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. I like that. We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This is He, this was He, of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Let me say there again, as we study the Word of God, we find that the glory of God and the presence of God are always linked together. And it says we beheld His glory. What did we behold? We beheld His presence. He wasn't just God. He was God in the flesh. He wasn't just flesh. He was God in the flesh. You see, part of the reason that I know that Christ is the Son of God When I read what he said, it sounds like God. (laughs) When I read what he said, no one could speak such beautiful words of truth but the very Son of God. And oh, my friend, only God would send his Son 
in the flesh for you and I. The incarnation is a fascinating thing. Part of the reason I know... By the way, I don't know why people that that reject the virgin birth accept any portion of the Word of God. Because if you believe that Christ was born of sinful man, the entire Word of God unravels. But His incarnation was a miraculous thing. I do not believe He was just born of a young woman. I believe He was born of a young woman, but that doesn't mean anything. Go to the elementary schools. Even in Knox County, you'll find children born of young women. I believe that He was born of a virgin, as the Bible says. And that is a miraculous thing. Never in human history has that ever happened before, save for our Savior. That's the only person. I know that historians and and mythologists like to say that Alexander the Great was uh, born of a virgin birth. I I know that he didn't, so take this as tongue-in-cheek, but if he was born of a virgin birth, he sure wasted that opportunity for a sinless nature. Amen? Uh, Alexander the Great, though he was a great conqueror, was a full-blown homosexual that I believe died because of his sin at a young age. Alexander the Great could have stormed even further than he did if it hadn't been for his sin. But no, no, there's never been a man that has been born of a virgin except for our Lord. To me, that bears testimony that He is the very Son of God. I want to give you one last thing and we'll close. Number seven, we see the testimony of His ministration. Look at verse number 16. It says, And of His fullness have we all received grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now this I want you to get. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. You say, what was the ministry of Jesus Christ? The ministry of Jesus Christ encompassed a lot of things. But if I could give you one summarizing statement, I would say it was the declaration of the person of God to a lost world. Philip had been with Christ for these three years, and he looked at him there in John chapter number 14. And he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Christ said, Philip, have I been so long time with you? you have not known me. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He was saying that He was the manifestation of Christ or of God to them. The Bible says that in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. You say, well, I just want to know more about God. Get in the Word of God and you'll know more about God. Go through the Gospels. How could anyone, how could anyone Read the Gospels, believe them, and reject Christ's deity. When was there ever a man that could open the eyes of the blind that had been blind from birth, but our Lord did it? When was there ever a man uh, that could raise the dead that had been dead for four days, but our Lord did it? When was there ever a man that could cry out upon Calvary, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and it was done. No man has the power to do that. Only God has the power to do that. And yet He did it. You see, the three and a half years that our Lord walked this earth present to us His deity. It doesn't matter whether you read it out of Matthew, whether you read it out of Mark, whether you read it out of Luke. I know Luke presents Him as the Son of Man, but you'd be hard-pressed to read through the book of Luke and not realize that He was the Son of God. The great central truth of Christianity is this. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The great central truth of Christianity, what is the mystery of godliness? God manifest in the flesh. Christ was not just a good man, because if He was not the Son of God, He could not be a good man. He was a liar and a charlatan because he claimed to be the Son of God. But I believe he was the Son of God. I believe he is the Son of God. I don't believe he ever ceased being. I understand he's not with us now in physical form, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Oh, and the Bible says he ever liveth, ever liveth, ever liveth to make intercession for us. We find in John chapter 1 these seven testimonies. I hope that you've jotted them down. I hope you've took note of them. Because there may come a time in your life when you have to present the deity of Christ to someone. Let me say that I I believe if we were more bold about our belief that Christ was the Son of God and is the Son of God and is God or was God in the flesh, that I believe it would help us in our evangelism. Let me ask you, why would a sinner believe what you say? Why would a sinner believe what I say? Except we have the testimony of the Word of God and the saving gospel of the Son of God. I hope you jotted them down. I hope they're a help to you tonight. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, Heavenly Father, bless this invitation now to Your glory and to Your honor. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.